a, a cultural landscape that Jesus is talking about. You know, as Christians, we, we aren't, again, we aren't told to uproot the evil ourselves, right? I mean, yeah, we're supposed to go into the world, we're supposed to spread good. But at the end of the age, you know, Jesus will uproot the evil and the, the good together and then separate them as they should be separated. Yeah, Jim. God will take vengeance. Yes, exactly. Um, it, it, vengeance is mine, say, says the Lord, right? So it's, it's again, you know, it's, it's something, a culture, a world we're supposed to live in and not be of. Um, and, and it goes a long way in explaining how uh, we, we are to live as Christians here. Finally, the, the mustard seed reminds us of just how far the smallest of good things can go. By setting aside the anxiety of weeds of evil and letting the good fully take root in us, what we may have initially thought was a very small thing will take root and grow to overcome all evil. In Jesus, we will grow as a body to overtake evil with good. This is the power of our small good in a big God. So again, you know, all of these parables, uh, the, the, the soils and the weeds and the mustard seed, all point toward us living in a world that is uh, full of sin and full of wrong. And counteracting that with good and with courage and with love. And with peace and with all of the good things that, that go along with being a Christian. Because if we live lives of fear, if we live lives of um, despair, then we're going to find ourselves increasingly being scared and increasingly despairing about the world that we live in. Now, a little bit farther into this. Jesus and the botanical world. <laughs> um, Jesus knew how to teach about planting and growing because he made it all. Consider that. Uh, Jesus made everything. Uh, yeah, he grew up in, a, in an agrarian society, uh, but his true place is in the realm of the creator. Imagine if you could understand how a seed actually works. There are many scientists today who have studied the component parts of seeds and even looked at them at the molecular level, but none of them can explain how and why they do what they do. It's still a mystery. But Jesus knows exactly how and why they work because he made them all. We see this clearly in John chapter 1, and we've also seen how he upholds the universe by the word of his power. If you look at Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. This means that every atom, molecule, and force in nature is being held together by Him, by our Savior, by Jesus Himself. He upholds it all by the word of His power. That's an amazing thing to me, to think about how involved Jesus is in everything around us. Even in, our, even in this, this flesh, you know, even in the, the little molecules and atoms and the forces that hold all that together. That's all because of him. That's awesome. It's amazing. This being understood then, there are probably deeper understandings in his parables and in his ongoing work in the universe 
that we don't comprehend and never could hope to. This also means that the work we're invited to participate in within his creation is all the more important. So that power, you know, that Jesus exerts on nature, on his creation, on everything we see around us, you know, we, we can trust in that. We can, we can see that. It, it, it adds weight. It adds importance to the work that we do because his power in us is uh, accomplishing so much of this. And in Paul's conversation with the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, 2 through 3, he gives us a picture of the significance of us in his kingdom, in Jesus' kingdom. It says, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you, not in, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? There is an important subtext and responsibility then for Christians in the kingdom of heaven here and now and in the future. Um, I don't. I think that there's a huge uh, statement that Paul is making here about what it means to be uh, in Christ. The, the responsibility that we are imbued with when we become Christians. I mean, the fact that we will judge the world, the fact that we will judge angels. Um, I know that he's using this as a, a, a big uh, explanation on how we're supposed to deal with matters, legal matters and other matters within the church. But that doesn't, that doesn't negate the fact that he's saying something true here about our place in the creation and in the kingdom of heaven forever. In the station of judgment, in the station of importance within his kingdom and in his plan. Uh, Jesus speaks of this also in Luke 7, 28, when he says, I tell you among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. You and I are blessed amazingly to be able to work in God's kingdom. We've all been given an opportunity to live fearless, guilt-free, powerful lives of service to God. This isn't only an amazing gift, but something we can all use as an encouragement and motivation to continue our work for Jesus. Can you imagine, you know, Jesus making that statement to you today that you are greater than John the Baptist because... You are in his kingdom. I mean, we have to ask the question, well, in, in what way are we greater? Well, <laughs> at least in the, the way of salvation we are. Uh, the way that we have been added to that kingdom and, and the gifts that we were, are given and the responsibilities that we're given to work in that kingdom. Those are things that we are able to do that John the Baptist was never able to do. He didn't see the kingdom come the way we have seen it. But back to the botanical world of Jesus. Um, something that's always fascinated me is the Garden of Eden and the things that grew there. You ever thought about the things that were growing in the Garden of Eden? While there are many who interpret the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as mere symbols, these were obviously fruit-bearing trees that could be eaten as food. If you just read Genesis, it's obvious these, these were real trees. These were things that, that Adam and Eve were told they could or could not eat of. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6, it's plain that they ate the fruit. It says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, 
and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The amazing thing to me is that these special foods could do amazing things like change one's perceptions of the world and imbue one with eternal youth. When Jesus created these trees and their fruits, what kind of special power was placed therein? I don't think it's a a question we can fully answer or comprehend, but something I think we need to ponder in order to see His power and work in His creation from the beginning through the end of the age. And the fruit He made was the same power we will receive for eternal life in Him, a life made possible by His own work and power in us. Um, see in Revelation you know, about the, the tree of life being in the new heavens and the new earth. Um, now again, while that might be symbolic, it, it still goes back to the power that was present in that tree from the beginning to be able to give the, the eternal life to man. And this all goes together to show us how that power is in us today through Jesus himself, who is our new tree of life. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 through 21, we see, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So this power that rose Jesus from the dead is working in us today. And it's that power through which his creation and and the growing, the tree of life, it all comes together and culminates in our salvation. And that's amazing to me. It's wonderful. It's beautiful. Because that gives me hope and it gives me courage and it gives me strength to be able to do the things that I, I want to do for Jesus because I love him. And, it, and it, it is the same for all of us in the same way. So Jesus sustains the growth of everything and everyone. Jesus not only made everything, he continues in the creation and sustainment of everything and everyone. Let's look at how God's word impacted creation. Of course, in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, we all know it very well. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now let's compare that with John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The similarity, which we've all seen and understand, is astonishing and explains so much about God's creative power and methodology. He literally speaks all matter into existence. But once the physical universe is spoken, he doesn't stop there. That It's not the end. He's not done speaking. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. He is, this is talking about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The matter and forces in our universe are held together by Jesus' creative will and power. I don't know how. But there's obviously something deeper and more mysterious than the magnetic and gravitational forces we experience that hold matter together. There's something else. Um, in fact, uh, if you, I don't know how many of you are into science. I, I love science. I think it's really interesting. I, I try to learn as much as I can about it because I think it, it just shows how powerful God is. It shows how amazing he is that he set these laws in motion. But even... Um, physicists and, uh, and uh, quantum uh, physicists who, who, who study matter, who study the largest and the smallest things in, in nature, I guess if you want to put it that way, in creation, I would say, are, are still uh, trying to figure out how things are held together and, and how, um, uh, how... how, how they, they try to postulate things like dark matter and, and, and other kinds of forces and other theories to try to understand why things are held together the way they are because they don't, I think what they're missing is Jesus. <laughs> Ultimately, I think what they're missing is the fact that they won't necessarily ever find all the answers because they can't, because there's another world, there's another uh, reality that they can't see, that they can't get into. And um, unfortunately, if, if you're someone who's a materialist who won't accept that, you're going to be unsatisfied. You're, you're never going to be satisfied because you're never going to realize that part of the power that holds everything, most of the power that holds everything together and makes everything work in this physical world that we experience is the power of Christ. And that's, that's something that we as Christians can be satisfied with. We can look at nature, we can look at the universe, we can look at creation and see all the amazing wonders and all the beautiful things that God has done and all the laws that he's put in place to govern the physical world. But we as Christians have that extra something that allows us to go, wow, it really all is because of Christ. It's all because of our Savior that all of this holds together and all of this makes sense. He makes it make sense. In Hebrews uh, 1 uh, chapter, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. It says some more about this. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. We talked about that earlier. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Can you imagine a roof with uh, no walls or pillars underneath it? Can you imagine such a thing? Just a roof just hovering in the air by itself. It doesn't make any sense, right? Well, it doesn't make any sense because you have to have a foundation upon which to build, supporting structures and something to hold it all together before you can have a roof. Our physical world is no different. 
While a materialist only looks as deep as the matter itself, the believer understands that there is someone whose power initiates and upholds that matter, whose power holds it all together. Jesus holds it all together. Jesus isn't any normal farmer. He's the one who made the smallest component of the seed, the soil, the water, and the sunlight that makes photosynthesis happen. Jesus understands more about what it means to live and grow than anyone. He teaches us to learn and grow as well and holds everything together by his power. It's all held together by Christ himself. Now, a few words on work application. Of course, this whole lesson has been about Jesus the farmer, about how he knows everything from the inside out. Jesus' knowledge of farming and growing is deeper and more developed than the most devoted student of agriculture today. His observations concerning how things grow and hold and and how those uh, growing things apply to his kingdom are perfect allusions to the coming church and those who would live in it. Jesus sees this through yet another parable, prophetic in its instruction. This is in Mark chapter 4, verses 30 through 32. And he said, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It's like the grain of a mustard seed, which when sown in the ground is the smallest of seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Jesus uses us, you and me, to propagate this seed and water it. When he gives the increase, just imagine how full the beautiful tree, adorned with the most colorful and amazing birds of heaven, you and me, and others who we bring to Christ. Jesus provides care and feeding for us birds as we nest in his kingdom, sustaining us and everything in his universe. Through upholding his word, we're able to live and move and have our being, which allows us to accomplish work for him in his kingdom. Jesus not only shows us how he grows everything to include his church, but he shows us how to grow personally in our work, marriages, spirit, and life as a whole, maturing and becoming more in his image every day. So the idea of farming, cultivating, uh, growing, giving nutrition to us as individuals, as a church, and to the world all about us, all comes together in the idea of this mustard seed, this very small thing. Churches, I've seen small churches, little churches do great things. Little congregations uh, give help to people who are poor, people who are suffering, Missionaries, orphans, widows, those are big things. Those are amazing, beautiful things. We do that here. That's part of that farming ministry. It's part of that growth that we help provide through that small mustard seed, through the small things. Just a few questions for thought before we move into the next lesson. How is Jesus helping you grow in your work and life as a whole? Give me some examples. How is Jesus helping you grow in your work and in your life?
Any personal examples? Yeah, so faith has a big part to do, a big part of it, and okay, something that you mentioned, Miss Nell, that kind of got me, got my mind going a little bit, um, the harrowing things. Anybody know what a, a disc harrow is or a spring tooth harrow? <laughs> Y'all know what that is. You know the term harrowing came from that. If you're experiencing harrowing things in life, well, in order for plants to grow in order to really get a a crop ready to go, you have to harrow the soil, don't you? You have to break it up. You have to break up the clumps. And you use spring tooth harrows and disc harrows to do that. It digs up, turns over the soil, allows it to get moisture and air and all the things that it needs to be able to, to grow fruit. And part of the harrowing that we go through in life, you know, being dug up and turned over and, and made ready, is is a part of faith and a part of growth. And it can be very difficult. It can be a hard thing. Trials make us stronger. Absolutely, yes. And, and it's something to remember and something to rejoice in. You know, it's hard to rejoice when we're going through the harrowing circumstances of life. But, you know, if we can look and go, wow, that really helped me to be more patient or it really helped me to love more or have more compassion, or have more peace, or whatever it might be, or to be able to give more peace to someone else, or give more compassion or love, or, or whatever it might be to someone else. That's a great blessing. That's beautiful. That's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. can do all things, yeah. <laughs> right. So doing all things through Christ who strengthens us and, and re- referring to, well, you know, that's, that's interesting that, you know, we do have the harrowing, but then the strength comes from the harrowing. But, you know, you have the strength that's coming. So it's kind of these, these dichotomies, you know, coming together to make us stronger, to, to fill, you know, fill us up with, with what we need. To, to grow in him. That's great. Thank you, George. I appreciate that. So how will growing in the image of Jesus help you be more effective in your work? Growing in his image. Uh, okay. All right. So love and kindness. The, the things... Okay, so the image of Christ... Okay, we know he is loving, we know he is kind. What other trustworthy, all right? Jesus, the image of Christ that we see that we want to be on us. 
is going to allow us to be more effective, right? It's going to inform our work ethic, isn't it? Um, it's going to make us more uh, effective, more prosperous in our work. <clears throat> and, and unfortunately, sometimes it might make us unpopular. But ultimately, when it comes to work overall, it's, it's going to have uh, an important effect on us. Helps us to be more effective in this world, in this culture, and everything around us. Now, how are you propagating and watering the mustard seeds in your life? Okay. All right. Okay. So studying God's Word does help a great deal. But, but if, you, if you study that Word, yes, it's going to help you grow. But as far as propagating the seeds and watering the seeds in the culture around you. Teach more by example than you do by word. Okay. And I appreciate you for that, Brother Gene. Uh, your kindness shows, and I appreciate that. And the kindness of, of so many people in this congregation shows here. And we can use that to show it out there too, right? Kindness and love. The beautiful things, you know, being in the image of Christ. Growing in that, in that image all the time. All right, great. Well, any more comments or questions or anything? I'm going to try to go ahead and move into the next lesson if we can, Um, which is Jesus the Fisherman. And I've I've been looking forward to this one. I I say that about every one of these lessons, but really, I mean, (laughs) I've really enjoyed doing this. I enjoyed writing this lesson series um, and doing all the study for it because it's been really interesting and a lot of fun. Um, But Jesus the Fisherman. All right, great little tackle in, in his hands up there. Um, Jesus was and still is the best fisherman of all time. He didn't use waders. He walked on water. He didn't use radar or sonar to find fish. He could get inside a fish's head and make it come to him. <clears throat> Jesus didn't even have to catch a boatload of fish. He could take one or two of them and multiply them 10,000 times over. There's no professional fisherman who ever lived who could touch Jesus. This study is all about Jesus the fisherman and his lessons to us on how to catch, produce, and multiply. If we will be fishers of men, we must watch the real Bass Pro in action. So, Jesus the fisherman, catching fish, is not just about wetting a hook. When Jesus set out to catch fish, he always had a goal in mind. It wasn't necessarily about how many fish were caught, but the impact of the catch. You ever go fishing with that in mind? Is it, is it about how many fish you catch or about the impact of, of the catch? I know with my boys, if I take them fishing, if they catch a fish about as long as my thumb, they're excited. They are overwhelmed. They are jumping up and down, man. They can't believe they caught a fish. It's the impact of them, not necessarily about just how many they caught. You sit there for hours, and if you catch one fish and it's exciting, the impact is huge. And the same is the case with Jesus. Of course, the most pronounced event that we see is the great catch 
uh, Jesus calls when he first began his ministry. It's over in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. I'll read through this. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. It's also the Sea of Galilee, Sea of Tiberias. Um, And he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I'll let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come help them. And they came and filled the boats, both of the boats, so that they began to sink. That's a lot of fish. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. At this point in his ministry, at the beginning of it, it seems, Jesus is tired. He's being, he's being mobbed by people and apparently already into his earnest, early ministry, he's, he's trying to teach the people. Um, but it's impossible to teach when people are squishing you. So he uses one of the boats to get some distance and teach. He needed to get away from the people so he could speak to them. They were all too close. But what he does after the sermon's over is the real teachable moment. It's so impactful that Peter immediately realizes who Jesus is and can't stand in his presence. Only God could make something like this happen. It's in this moment that we see the power of the catch, the impact of the catch. It isn't about how much is caught, but it's about how much it affects those who will now catch men. Stephen Llewellyn and Blake Wassell give some insight into this in their article, Fishers of Humans, the Contemporary Theory of Metaphor and Conceptual Blending Theory. They say the expression indicates an emphasis on being made something that is both familiar and unfamiliar, normal and abnormal, old and new. Thus, we will label the source domain as a fisher. It is the makeup of a fisher that will structure conceptually and experientially the fishers coming after Jesus. So this whole concept of being a fisher of men is the one that we use to pattern our lives after. It's about preparation. It's about following after. It's about having the right equipment. And it's about the impact of the catch. You see where we're going with that? You see the pattern that Jesus lays out in his fishing ministry? What he's doing, how he's teaching them, and how he's teaching us in that ministry? Helping us to understand how he does it, how he plans it, and how he works it? Jesus used one fish to teach another lesson to Peter. In Matthew chapter 17, verses 24 through 27, he's talking to Peter uh, here in a moment. And he says, when they came to Capernaum, 
The collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? And he said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Here in this little excerpt, this little story between uh, Simon and, and Jesus... With one fish, Jesus gives Peter a new perspective on the kingdom and civil authority. At once, he makes clear that his kingdom is not of this world and the necessity of operating within, with humility and service within the civil system of the time. The catch here is obedience and understanding. So Jesus, every time that he makes a catch, every time that he catches a fish, so to speak... He's using that to teach. He's using that to get something across to the people who are around him and teaching them how to live in the world and not be of the world at the same time. This is what he's doing for Peter here. He's telling him about how to live with humility and service within the system he's in, but not to be of the world. Jesus bookends his ministry with another great catch, this time... It reveals something more amazing than the first catch. In John chapter 21, verses 1 through 8 and verse 14. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. Again, that's the Sea of Galilee, Lake of Gennesaret. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee the sons of Zebedee and two others, uh, two others of the disciples were gathered together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we'll go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. He said to them, Casting it on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, we know that is John obviously, <clears throat> therefore said to Peter, it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. I love that story. This catch is the final lesson about Jesus and his power to make things whole. Look at what Peter does when he realizes that the man on the shore is Jesus. He doesn't tell the other disciples to row in or wait and holler to Jesus to ask if it's really him. Peter, Peter hurls himself into the sea of Tiberias and swims as hard as he can to get to Jesus, his risen Lord. Do we run to Jesus like that today? 
Do we hurl ourselves overboard, swim as fast and hard as we can to get to Jesus? When we see the Lord, do we drop everything to be with Him and listen to His words? Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, James, and John were all in the middle of work when they first met Jesus and when they last listened to Him and caught 153 fish. But they didn't let work get in the way of being with and listening to Him. Today, Jesus uses our own work to call us. And we need to be ready to listen to Him over the noise of our own race for success, money, and recognition. There are going to be times in your work, wherever it might be, that maybe you're being too distracted. And Jesus, and you, you see Jesus off in the distance, and you kind of wonder, who is that guy? And then you realize who it is. But then do you stop and you go, well, I really got to get back to work. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll go see Jesus later. Or do you run to him? Do you drop what you're doing and you run to your Lord and you kneel at his feet and you learn from him? That's what Peter, that's the point Peter got. That's the lesson Peter learned. And I think it's a lesson we all have to learn as well. Sorry, I went a little too far. Can you go back one for me? <laughs> Producing the catch. Fishers of people. Just as Jesus tells the apostles in Luke <clears throat> that they will catch men, he exposes a new level of the effect human beings can have on the world. Up until this point, the only means of coming into a relationship with God was to be, become a proselyte as a Jew, which included many laborious rituals and denials of their own culture, race, and background. But under this new kingdom of heaven, there was a freedom never known before, and it led to a revolution in bringing people out of darkness and into God's truth. You and I are very blessed to live in that kingdom today. We're blessed to be able to have the identity that we have in Christ. And we'll talk more about that next Sunday. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it.